1: I can't pay a second mortgage
2: payment. Connecticut is going down, and if we have a predatory electrical provider... My
3: son had a heat stroke.
1: We're waiting till October to say the kids
2: could think about going back into the classroom.
3: Human sex drug traffickers should not be
2: allowed to cross our border. I haven't dealt with them at all over years now, literally years.
0: This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanshul broadcasting remotely. That was President Donald Trump downplaying his connection to former advisor Steve Bannon after Bannon's yacht arrest off Westbrook, Connecticut. You also heard Kimberly Guilfoyle speaking, or should I say shouting, at the Republican National Convention. Danbury Mayor Mark Bouton discussing a spike of COVID-19 in his city and the decision to start school online. Also, voices of Connecticut residents airing their grievances during a hearing hearing on Eversource rate hikes. On the panel today, I want to welcome back to the show Daniela Altamari, state government and politics reporter at the Hartford Current. Daniela, welcome back. Hi. Also with us on Zoom, Kevin Rennie, Hartford Current columnist, also a former state lawmaker. Kevin, welcome back to the show.
2: Thank you, Lucy.
0: And Colin McEnroe is here, host of the Colin McEnroe Show and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Hi, Colin.
2: A spicy nutmeg state hello to you all.
0: (laughs) You can also join us on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. Now, today is day three of the Republican National Convention. First Lady Melania Trump addressed the GOP last night from the White House Rose Garden. She was the only headliner to acknowledge the pandemic and the Americans who've died. Other notable speakers this week, U.S. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina and former Secretary of State Nikki Haley and a gun-toting couple from St. Louis, who we'll talk about in just a few minutes. Uh, Colin, uh, from watching, what is the message from this convention?
2: You know, that's a hard question to answer. Um, (laughs) The the playbook says that a convention for an incumbent president uh, has to have as its central message, things are going well, reelect our guy. Uh, and, And that is a lot of the message of this convention. But I mean, the reality is things are not going well. Uh, So part of the message here is things will get substantially worse if you don't reelect our guy. That was very much the message of night one. Uh, Trump began his term with a speech about American carnage, the idea being that it was a, a thing that was happening and he was going to end it. Now his message, particularly on night one, was that American carnage will flare up if he's gone. I mean, the difficult fact is that we've been through a year in which hospitals, coroner's offices and funeral homes have struggled with bodies overflowing their storage areas. There's been unrest in the streets on a widespread scale not seen in 50 years. And the economy is tanked partly because of the so-called Chinese virus, but partly because the best way to save the country would have been to have a consistent national policy on COVID from the very beginning. So when you think about it, this is almost as if Trump, when he was talking about carnage in his inaugural address, was describing a deliverable as opposed to something that uh, he intended to put an end to. I guess what I kept wondering last night, and I thought last night's tone was different and better, um, not just Melania. I think there were some other instances of that. But, you know, I mean, I'm one of these old fashioned people who believes that the way the system works is to have good people on both sides. You know, on social media these days, it seems like the only way that you can think about Uh, partisan politics in America is to love one side and and just uh, unabashedly hate the other side. I've never felt that way. I think both sides need good people. Uh, I think the Republican convention, you know, it needs to do two things. One of them is to attempt to sell Trump to the electorate, but the other, and it's so hard to do with Trump kind of standing in the shot all the time, is to say, there's another party sitting inside this one, and this is going to be over at a certain point. And when it's over, here's, here's what the consistent, enduring message of the Republican Party is going to be. And I think it's, that's really, really hard for them to do, partly also because the kind of moderating voices that they might have, the sort of Mitt Romney wing of the party, is not really going to be allowed to talk very much there.
0: Mm. Kevin Reddy, what do you think of what Collins said?
1: I think a lot of it is true. And, uh, I was, have been struck uh, and, uh, I only watched pieces on Monday night. I did watch quite a bit last night and I've just been struck at how angry they are for an incumbent party mm. that, um, uh, th- that anger would, would, uh, if you took it to its logical conclusion, would, uh, suggest that they failed. And, um, I know there, was a, there seemed to be a, a bid for uh, that one electoral vote that they think they might be able to capture in uh, Maine's second congressional district, and obviously Wisconsin. There were a lot of speakers from Wisconsin last night, and um, if, they, have to, they have to ignore the realities of, of what's going on economically in the United States. Certainly, there is no V-shaped recovery that was, uh, that was talked about in March and April. And uh, and so uh, if you if you don't have those things, you I guess you you um, uh, you emphasize uh, uh, your anger at uh, at, at your uh, traditional adversary, and impute to them powers that they do not possess
0: when you talk about anger do you think kevin uh, that they're trying to appeal to what they believe is their base a bunch of angry americans that aren't happy with uh, a country led by democrats
1: yeah well i think you know uh, they're they're you know each we have, we're a country of 300 million people with only with two major political parties mm-hmm. so you're going to have a lot of different strains in uh, in each one but right now, the strain uh, that is control in, in that dominates the Republican Party is frightening, and they want others to be frightened, and they really think that fear is 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 what will um, heave them across the finish line first in uh, in November.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniela, when you talk uh, to uh, Democrats uh, in this country, a lot of them think it's frightening the status of where our country is uh, today. And But when we want to contrast the two different conventions, uh, there seem to be a lot more hope and optimism at the DNC than, than the RNC. Yeah,
3: I mean, to a certain degree, conventions are just, you know, reality shows or they're just sort of uh, scripted infomercials, uh, you know. That's been true for a long time. Um, but um, I think uh, you you heard some um, sort of um, the more typical things that we saw at the at the DNC, for instance, uh, Senator Tim Scott's speech, where he spoke of his mother. I mean, those were sort of the the more traditional elements of a of a political convention. Um, but you know, it's like those. It's like the Olympics when NBC does these stories on the athletes and the over adversity they've overcome and all that kind of thing. You're really trying to pre- present a human portrait. But yeah, I think um, what's been said about the RNC is correct. That it really is. You know, there's there's a, a level there of of anger and of um, sort of stoking some of these. Fears that people have about uh, the civil unrest in cities and what that will mean. You know, we heard over and over again, Joe Biden wants to raise your taxes and get rid of the police. I, I believe neither of those things are actually true. Um, you know, and yet uh, they were repeated over and over again um, by speakers uh, last night and and Monday night as well. You know, Monday night they started with this montage of. Of governors, uh, particularly Cuomo, and and also uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, talking about the pandemic and how it was going to be over soon. And they had Nancy Pelosi going to Chinatown in San Francisco, so telling people not to be afraid. Factual video clips of things that really happened. Of course, what wasn't shown was President Trump's own comments, where he, you know, continually and for a very long time. Down, and perhaps still is doing this downplaying the virus saying it's going to be over. Uh, we're going to have a wonderful Easter with all the churches open. And so, you know, again, there's just this, this um, perhaps bending of the truth uh, in some of the imagery that you're seeing in some of the comments that you're hearing from the speakers at the RNC.
0: Colin, when we look at conventions uh, in the past, can we talk about, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, some of the stunts that uh, were seen uh, last night? Thinking of about highlighting this presidential pardon of John Ponder, also this very strange naturalization ceremony.
2: Yeah that had sort of a Potemkin village quality to it. Um I, I you know look conventions are full of stunts. Uh, the difference here is partly because of COVID-19 and I, but I think to a larger degree because of the temperament and, and understanding of the job uh held by by Donald Trump. You had these things which are are probably not that anybody really in America cares about this but they're probably Hatch Act violations uh using Mike Pompeo from Israel on a t- taxpayer-funded diplomatic mission using the White House as, I mean, so presidents are famous for flying to their campaign events in Air Force One and using Air Force One as a prop as, you know, the equivalent is kind of a scepter. You know, here I am. I'm the president. I've got this great plane. But it usually stops there. And legally, it's kind of supposed to stop there. You're not really supposed to be using, you know, even as Melania Trump did last night, the Rose Garden as a backdrop for one of your convention activities. I don't think that particularly tracks very well as an issue with the American public. Um, but it is an indication in uh, some of it you, know, you could argue as a necessity dictated by the pandemic. But but I, I do think that one of the things that Donald Trump has wanted to do in this convention is to emphasize the office that he holds. I mean, the other thing that he has sort of been in a weird way is You know, I used to sort of review all of Shakespeare's history plays to try to figure out, like, who he was. But the truth is, in a way, he's kind of bottom from Midsummer Night's Dream. You know how bottom wants to play all of the parts? You know, he wants to be in every scene. He, He thinks that every possible part that could be auditioned for, he tells Peter Quince, oh, I'd be good for that. There's a way in which Trump is like that, too. He cannot stand to be out of the shot. So, you know, I mean, the first day, I think he had three different appearances, starting with a really long, windy speech after the morning roll call. I mean... In my lifetime, no president has done anything like this uh his insistence on being ubiquitous you, you know, usually the the nominees like the bride you know you're not supposed to see them that you can glimpse them once in this demure coquettish shot from a luxury box but that's about it um so this is unusual
0: <laughs> Kevin Rennie, you've been to national conventions what's your take from what you've seen again of course we're in a pandemic, so a lot of it has to be virtual
1: I miss the the uh, crowd that doesn't pay attention and that makes a lot of noise and the delegates are talking to one another and not listening to the speakers and you there, there's there is something uh, reassuringly normal about that and uh, and this this does feel well it, it looks and feels very different but there, it does it feels so artificial and um, uh, it is of course the last. Opportunity that each party has to sort of have uh, extended, uninterrupted access to the American people, and so uh, they they um, they hold on to these four days, even though they really could do this in well, they could do it in a day, but they could uh, they certainly could do it in two days, and um, I'd be curious to see if the audience builds or or just sort of gives it a shrug after a while because. It is monotonous uh, with just one one speaker after another, and um, uh, you don't even have the breaks of of you know the talking heads. At least at least from what I've watched on CNN, and so it it just feels nothing like a convention. Mm.
2: PBS has more talking heads if you're if you're dying for. Them. <laughs> All right, <laughs> thank you. I was thank just going to say that. that. That's how I've been watching. Note.
0: <laughs> Kevin, is there anything about this convention or the, the message that's coming out of it that inspires you as a Republican or do you think it's just falling? Well, I,
1: I think I, I am. I am. I am not. I am a I am still registered as a Republican. But I am a uh, I, I am an anti I, I am I am vehemently uh, opposed well to this first term. Donald Trump won, and certainly a second term. Um, I no, I I I, um, I did not really see any inspiring, except that uh, that retired FBI officer uh, who um, uh, who immediately helped. And I'm sorry, I don't remember his name. the 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 man who was pardoned, who went to him uh, right after he was released from prison, and encouraged him, and said you have, you have uh, a big life ahead of you. I, I thought that was remarkable.
2: I, you know, I thought there were a few other things. I, mean, I thought the cop who adopted the baby of the woman with the heroin problem. I mean, I do know that may have been a very glossy version of that story, but I thought it was kind of inspiring. I also I think you have to give Melania and whoever wrote that speech some props for taking the narrative in a, in a different direction. Um, I would also say a couple of interesting things. I, Nicholas Sandman, the kid uh, in the famous picture, I think he's got a point worth making about how people are just eviscerated well on very little detailed knowledge of their actual story by social media and sometimes by the press and i even think the um the attorney general from kentucky the uh, young african-american man i think his point is worth listening to democrats should listen to that 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 whole idea of don't don't do that joe biden thing and assume that if you're black i'm entitled to your vote just on a on a default basis that's an important message you know if you're on, that on the is a message
1: that 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 black republicans have been trying to make for a long time and uh and he he was uh uh he's a very good messenger
0: Daniela, what about other connecticut republicans you've spoken with ones that are watching from afar what are they thinking
3: well i think um colin you know made a really good point about how you know trump is so much at the center of all of this you know traditionally you have um, other candidates you know the Democrats certainly brought in all their uh, past candidates, you know both those that were successful like uh, Barack Obama and you know uh, John Kerry and obviously Hillary Clinton um, there were there was no speech by uh, Mitt Romney that for obvious reasons I guess um, that you know 2012 nominee obviously John McCain is no longer with us, but it's very unlikely that he would be invited. Uh, w is nowhere near there. Um, so this is really all about Trump, and Trump is so central to this party now. They don't even have a platform anymore. They just have, we we endorse whatever President Trump wants us to endorse. And that's true. That has filtered down, I, I think, um, you know, even to the to the state and local level. Back about a year, uh, about I don't know, nine months ago, before impeachment, I called every uh, Republican town chair in Connecticut. It didn't reach all of them, and some didn't call me back. But of those I reached, only one person in a small eastern Connecticut town, and he was not even he was the acting chair, or the former chair. He they hadn't yet appointed somebody to replace him. He was the only one that was critical of President Trump. Every other town chairman said you. president was doing a great job. You see that on the state party level as well. And you see that certainly when you talk with people, um, in Connecticut, uh, Republicans in Connecticut who have, um, publicly, publicly at least completely bought into, to Trump. So this is now, you know, the party of Trump a hundred percent. And I think, um, that's evident on, on every level.
1: You know, I, I do think though that, um, that's, that's a syndrome that has, that affects both parties and, um, you, know, you don't, you, for instance, when, um, when Ned Lamont, uh, said he, he didn't think the, uh, $600 weekly, f- uh, federal unemployment, uh, payment was, uh, was necessary. Um, Democrats, you know, Chris, uh, Chris Murphy, Dick Blumenthal, they didn't say a word, but when, when Republicans in Congress, uh have been uh would would not renew it well they they were they were uh quite vehement in their criticism of them but the the stand that you know the the position is the same and um so that what's one reason that our our public discourse is is uh, has such a such a a canyon uh between two different two sides is that is that no one's willing to uh to take note of the fact that people on their own side may take stands that they don't agree with, but they're they're silent when that happens.
3: I think you're right to some degree. I do recall a very subtle tweet by Senator Murphy that uh, some people did interpret as a swipe against the governor's um, comment. You know, being uh, being tone deaf or out of touch. Um, I may be remembering it wrong, but, um,
1: I, I think it was in response to a Republican. Uh, okay. but
3: certainly on the, on within the democratic party, there are very public disputes about policy. There are very sharp ideological lines about, you know, how do we handle, uh, the police? How, how should we deal with, you know, the environmental crisis? What well, we, should, we support Medicare for all, all those questions that. Um, I think Republicans have uh, had more of a tendency to walk um, in a line, whereas Democrats have uh, at least in some places, perhaps not as much in Connecticut, but have publicly split over some of these issues. That's why you see Democratic primaries in, you know, in Massachusetts in several places, including the Senate race there. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you are correct, definitely, uh, on, on the larger point. But there does seem to be a little bit more dissent, a little bit more willingness to, um, to challenge folks, both personally and um, on idea, uh, ideological lines in, within the Democratic Party than we're seeing within the Republican Party right now. It, well, obviously, there are people the Republicans for Biden, and there are you know we interviewed a whole bunch of them back in uh, back in July, and they were critical of of uh, the president and said they weren't going to vote for him. But um, but it's perhaps a little more muted on that side. Can we go
0: ahead?
1: I Can do we think talk some of the, for instance, in hmm. in Massachusetts with uh, Kennedy challenging Markey, that that seems to be more about. Generational ambition and get out of the way, yes. and it's my turn. Then you know it's it it's 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 not easy to find uh, significant differences on their no. on their policy stance.
3: That's true. I was thinking more of uh, the, the Richard Neal race, for instance, uh, where there are very sort of sharp differences. But but you're correct, definitely in the Senate race.
0: We, we've talked about some of the the politicians that have been featured at the RNC, but can we talk about the McCloskeys, this Mark and Patricia McCloskey, who spoke at the convention the other night? Um, likely we would never have heard of them, the St. Louis couple, uh, but they're now being seen in some circles as heroes when they grabbed their guns and pointed them at Black Lives Matter demonstrators passing their house on the way to a rally at the mayor's house that lived in the same neighborhood. Uh, Colin, is this an odd choice or is this exactly, again, uh, drumming up uh, Trump's base to come out to vote.
2: Well, to the extent that the first night of the convention seemed to have as its kind of working uh, text, you know, the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, um, I I think they were an appropriate choice. Uh, uh, So these are people, yeah, as far as we can tell, and this thing has been deconstructed and reconstructed a whole bunch of times, but you had... uh, essentially noisy but peaceful protesters passing the house yelling stuff um they got out on the lawn with two guns pointed the guns particularly the 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 woman with the pistol pointed the guns at the protesters i mean there were children there were children in this crowd passing uh and I, i was watching them and i was thinking at one point i think she said what happened to us could have happened to anybody and i thought nothing happened to you you have post nothing stress disorder um (laughs) Nothing happened to you. You overreacted to a situation. That's the that's what happened. Um, So they're an odd choice because I, I don't think that they are representative of most of most Americans or most Republicans. They are. Representative of a certain segment of the gun owning, you know, segment of the American population. It's kind of that. This is why we have guns, because we think someday a whole bunch of scary people are going to show up. So we want to have something to point at them. But um, I I think they 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 sort of fit a little bit of the tone of the first night. uh, ultimately, I, I don't know. It, de- it sort of depends on who is being spoken to, right? Who are you trying to persuade? I said last week, politics is about addition, not subtraction. So would you add any followers? Any? Would you persuade any persuadable people by having the McCloskeys up there? I, I kind of doubt it.
0: Kevin, what do you think about the McCloskeys?
1: Well, I think the McCloskeys are sort of a almost perfect Midwestern uh, uh, Version of Donald Trump's love of litigation. They are, they are, remarkably disputatious in uh, in their in their lives. They they've uh, uh, they uh, he the, uh, Mark McCloskey has sued uh, sued family members, and they had a long fight over a piece of property that he said was promised to him in a birthday card. Uh, they don't get along with their neighbors. And um, uh, I, I think they're just probably really, really difficult people to be around, and um, uh, that uh, they they sort of uh, revealed themselves to the world with running out on the on the uh, as, as someone wrote the porch looked like well, <laughs> something grander than a porch uh, with uh, w- with firearms with while well, a group. March five, and from all accounts, that the group, uh, just just uh, sort of a a march that we've we've kind of a peaceful march that we've uh, we've seen in many places.
0: We certainly wouldn't want them as neighbors, uh, Daniela. We can't end the segment without talking about another interesting story with the Connecticut connection. Plenty of people got a chuckle when news broke Steve Bannon was arrested on a 100 foot, 50 foot yacht in Long Island Sound off Westbrook, Connecticut. Bannon, a former advisor to the president, is accused of taking a million dollars worth of donations from a GoFundMe fundraising event. Donors were told the money would be used to privately fund a wall along the U.S.-Mexican border. Uh, any irony? in this arrest, the fact that uh, the, the administration is fighting over uh, the Postal Service, and we know this arrest was carried out by postal inspectors? <laughs> yeah,
3: that is uh, fitting to some degree, right? Um, but, uh, you know, uh, the timing uh, clearly, you know, just just happened when it happened, but it's interesting with the backdrop of the, you know, the RNC the following week, um, we've seen, you know, so many uh of trump's inner circle kind of uh meeting the same fate and um you know i am not sure what impact it will have among voters or not trump you know has said he hasn't talked to bannon in a, in a long time and you know has sought, sought to distance himself so you know who knows how this will play out uh in november
0: another interesting I, you know, part I, of the story kevin go ahead
1: well the uh you know that he that yacht belongs to the chinese billionaire who has um who fled China, and uh, has been uh, holed up in in uh, luxury in New York, and um, he is a uh, he is a very uh, mysterious figure, and it will the Chinese want uh, want him deported, and uh, all it has, it has uh, it, it is a complex puzzle around him, but I suspect that. In addition to hearing more about Steve Bannon, we're probably gonna hear more about the guy who owned the yacht. And, uh, and that really, that will probably go on beyond November. And that's probably an even more interesting and intriguing story. Mm-hmm.
0: Colin, do you want to give the last word on Bannon's arrest?
2: I, I would say it's sort of a, is part of a generalized accretion of really, really bad timing for Trump. Uh, one of the problems for Trump is that his whole life and his whole, his whole coterie is so tumultuous that there aren't a lot of stretches of calm, flat water. So, you know, heading into his convention, he's got his niece's book. He's got his sister's words on tape about him. He's got Kellyanne Conway having to leave, leave the White House uh, rather suddenly just because her daughter can't s- stand what's happening anymore. And, and you know, you've got Bannon getting arrested for the corruption connected to the wall. And I would think that that would be one of the last things Donald Trump would want to have in the news right now. The wall isn't close to being completed. It was such a centerpiece, both uh, as reality and slogan for him in 2016. Um, finish that wall doesn't really work as well as a chant. Uh, the wall itself is plagued by uh, questions about how the contracts were uh, awarded. There are Defense Department investigations going on right now uh, uh, about whether political influence played a, f- a factor, maybe even an awarding to the, con- the, the contracts to companies that didn't have the competence level necessary to do the job that they're supposed to do. So an arrest in connection with a grift connected to the wall, that's like, you know, heading into your convention. You don't want that.
0: That's Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show, also a columnist for Hearst, Connecticut, here on The Wheelhouse. Also here with us, Daniela Altamari, state government and politics reporter at The Hartford Current, and Kevin Rennie, Hartford Current columnist and former state lawmaker. After the break, a resource gets zapped by customers in a public hearing. Is there a missing watchdog for utilities in our state? We'll find out more about that. You can join us, too, on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Alpathanchel. With us today, Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show. Also, Daniela Altamari, state government and politics reporter at the Hartford Current, and Kevin Rennie, Hartford Current columnist and former state lawmaker. Now, the State Public Utility Regulatory Authority held an online public hearing Monday focused on Eversource's July 1st rate hike. A big increase in electric bills prompted out outrage from some customers. The situation only got worse after a tropical storm in early August. Knocked out power to much of the state. I was at without power for five days. Some people were in the dark for a week. Uh, Kevin, uh, let's talk a little bit about this informational hearing and what uh, Eversource uh, uh, told uh, lawmakers. uh, You know, when you think about uh, the last, uh, over the last uh, decade in terms of the storms that have hit the state and the fallout uh, from response, uh, what are some of the thoughts that you have about uh, protections for consumers in our state?
1: Well, we have... um... We have uh, the highest uh, electric rates in the continental United States. And uh, so if, if the amount we pay should be reflected in the service we receive, something has, has gone wrong. And um, one of the problems I think is that for the past year, there's been no consumer counsel in the, uh, in the uh, utility regulatory authorities Office. and that's that's an independent office that is because it's, it, its mission is set forth in its name. It is the consumer Council it's supposed to be an advocate for consumers. Uh, there's been an acting member there for the past year but no you know, no one who Governor Lamont has uh, has recruited uh, who, who sets forth the governor's philosophy of protecting consumers and being advocate consumers it hasn't, hasn't been there. And I, I, I'm not sure how important it, they had seen that position, although I understand they've been looking for someone. There are also two vacancies on the regulatory agency. Uh, the, the, the legislature expanded the number of members uh, last year, and, uh, and those new positions haven't been filled. But they could be filled by mem- new members with a background in energy. That has not been that, – that's not been the tradition on that um, – uh, in that office. It's been – there have been political people who have been placed on that commission because they're great jobs. But without a background in – right now, particularly now, in the complex business of generating and distributing energy, um, we're uh, – consumers are, are unrepresented at, uh, at that important agency. And the final point i make on this is the um, Pura, which is the Utility Regulatory Agency, their job should be rate-setting, just, just oversee the setting of rates. They do, they, they do not need to get involved in all sorts of other policy issues. There are, there are agencies that do that. They just need to set the rates and protect consumers.
0: Mm. Uh, we know that um, this uh, electric utility uh, regulation in the state is very complicated. Does that play in eversource's favor uh, Daniela, when it uh, comes time for them to seek rate hikes and uh, depending on on who they're asking, uh, they get their way most of the time.
3: Yeah, and I think um I, I, this is one of those things that you know perhaps public public anger or public attention spikes when we, you know such as yourself what a tremendous hardship you know especially during the pandemic uh during a brutally hot stretch you know people lacking air conditioning and, and electricity that's when everybody is focused on this but you know we've we've seen this movie before we've been through this before many times you know we lost power i think 11 days back in 2011 when we had the ice storm you know there's a lot of focus and a lot of public anger and a lot of attention of legislators and others uh, in the moment. And then other issues um, take, you know, it moves uh, back to the background because the lights are on and everything's fine. And and then we go through that cycle again. So it's really hard, both the complexity of the issues as you've raised and also, you know, just the, the many things competing for the public's attention that it's very hard to sort of um, sustain uh, focus on this very important topic, I think. Mm
0: -hmm. And we can't fail to mention the powerful lobby uh, behind uh, Eversource. Uh, There's even uh, state lawmakers who work for Eversource, although they recuse themselves from energy issues. Uh, Daniela, what do we know about, I know Senator Blumenthal is one of many calling for Eversource to be broken up and looking at small city specific utilities as a model. Is that even feasible?
3: Well, uh, actually, um, Caitlin uh, Krasel, a frequent guest here, she had a great story sort of looking at this in, in the Hearst papers, I think, uh, yesterday or today. I can't remember when I read it. But um, looking at those issues, yeah, it's a good talking point. But again, it's complicated. And you know, we all, anyone who has friends who live in Norwich knows that, you know, they do a fantastic job, uh, small independent utility. But how do you replicate that statewide, you know, an incredibly complex network. Um, So I'm not sure I don't uh, I would be one of those people who don't know enough about these complex issues to really weigh in to say if that's doable or not. But certainly it's something that's uh, gaining ground, at least as a as a talking point.
0: Kevin Rennie, what legal authority would Connecticut uh, have to break up a company headquartered out of state?
1: Well, we have we have a lot of authority over the uh, Connecticut Mm-hmm. Uh, portion of uh, of EverSource. Remember, it was it was a, a Northeast Utilities before the companies merged, and that was uh, in 2011. Uh, state government was was silent on that merger and uh, and what its consequences might be, which was something of that significance. Their silence told you that uh, how much influence they had, and and uh, uh, Governor Malloy was. Uh, he he was not interested in these issues, and uh, and Northeast Utilities, and then and EverSource, have been huge contributors to the Democratic Governors Association, and you know that matters. And Northeast Utilities executives uh, largely funded a, uh, a a an obscure political action committee that uh, that Chris Murphy used to buy. Tickets to sporting events. When he was uh, he was in the House of Representatives, I mean, their influence is everywhere, and one of the this this is this is not something that makes consumers very happy. But one of the one of the things we have to to realize is that uh, every time you know, we're told conserve energy, use install renewable energy, but when we do that. Every source comes in and says, "Well, more people are off the grid. We need a rate increase," and <laughs> and they get it so that so that the public, in many ways, is punished for doing the right thing. And uh, and until there, we have a a big breakthrough in uh, in how we generate energy. That's not going to change. And also, we're locked in to paying above market rates uh, for 10 years for the uh, energy that's that's generated at the Dominion plant, uh, nuclear power plants in Connecticut. I mean, that – the legislature uh, just agreed to that. And so this summer we're, we're paying uh, twice as much for the energy from Dominion as we are from, for instance, natural gas. Mm.
0: Danielle, I believe there's another hearing tomorrow before the energy committee. Uh, what do you expect? To, who's going to be there and what do you expect to hear?
3: Um, I actually don't I don't know who's going to be there. Um, but I think,
0: that, um, I think CEO Jim Judge will be.
3: <laughs> oh, well, then that should certainly be interesting. Um, it's like, uh, you know, putting him on the hot seat and um I think you'll hear a lot of tough talk um, from lawmakers, but again, how does that translate to action down the road? That's what we'll have to wait and see.
1: There are a couple of mayors who are going to be speaking Mm -hmm. also.
0: Well, I want to thank uh, our panelists for talking a little bit about Eversource, and we'll keep uh, focusing on uh, that uh, as uh, these hearings uh, continue. Again, Daniela Altamari is here with us on The Wheelhouse, state government and politics reporter at The Hartford Current. Kevin Rennie, Hartford Current columnist and former state lawmaker, and Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show. We'll hear from him right after the break. We're going to talk about how parents and educators face some tough decisions as the school year starts soon and Danbury's back in the news. I'm Lucy Potential. This is The Wheelhouse. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpethanchel. The state issued its first COVID alert on Friday after a spike in coronavirus cases in Danbury. Hundreds of new cases were reported over the last couple of weeks. Nursing homes are being tested in the city. Coronavirus testing has expanded. Parks have closed. Youth sports have been canceled. Colin, what do we know about uh, this spike in cases and how do you think the state and the city of Danbury has handled this?
2: Um, well, uh let me try to address both parts of this. So I, I think what we know about the spike is that um, when it first happened, just because it was such a dramatic upshot, um, my assumption was, because this is usually the case, that we were looking at one or two super spreader events. That's often how you you know go from a flat line to, to a, a line jumping up like that. It doesn't really quite seem that way. It seems a little bit more, as you just suggested, it seems a little bit more like a, a whole bunch of different things uh, all. Of which conspired to create more cases in a way I think that Danbury it, I mean this is a strange thing to say but it's kind of a good thing that this is happening because it's gonna happen it's gonna happen more than just this one time in Danbury and the state is gonna have to figure out and we as a society is, are gonna have to figure out how to deal with these situations how, you know wh- what are we gonna do um, particularly when the schools really reopen in full there are going to be some other um up jumps uh, in the infection rate what are we going to do about this how are we going to respond and ultimately you know um what do we think a human life is worth i mean there's such a thing as a statistical value of a human life human life it gets calculated in business all the time would you spend 10 million extra dollars to make things safe enough so that one person didn't die um we're going to be looking at that in a much more chaotic and tumultuous uh, scenario. And and so I, I would say, just to answer the second part of your question, I think Mark Bowden's done a pretty good job here. You know, I think he's talked very directly about what's going on. Um, he's uh, really encouraged people to take some of these dis- distancing guidelines more seriously. Uh, uh, he has talked very specifically about being at sports events where he looked up in the stands and people weren't wearing masks, etc. So, you know, I, I think Mark has acknowledged the seriousness of the situation and, and tried to get ahead of it.
0: Mm. It's interesting. We, as we mentioned, schools just around the corner. Uh, now, Danbury won't be having any in-person classes uh, until at least uh, October first, if that happens. When we look at all the data and considerations uh, that educators need uh, to uh, be focused on, Colin, you know, what's your take on these decisions that are happening at a local level? It looks very different depending on what community you are
2: in. Yeah, and that's a little bit of a problem too, right? I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I contrast it a little bit. I don't want to say anything that will cause Josh Jabal to call me up after the show, but um, you know, I contrast it a little bit with Rhode Island. What I've read about Rhode Island, where they're—I think they're doing walkthroughs of every single school and classroom, having experts do that. Uh, they've sent uh, set up kind of a storm center, except that it's for COVID nineteen. Uh, I think a little bit more central coordination, uh, or maybe even a lot more central coordination, uh, is a good idea. That's sort of been the lesson of the last six months, right? The more that you have a central central coordinated serious understood scientifically based set of messages the better off you are and leaving it to the you know to the vicissitudes of life in any particular connecticut town does strike me as a, a, a little bit risky and what we're hearing back from the unions is you know a lot of the schools aren't even they're even they're kind of acknowledging that they don't really have a way to keep students 6 feet apart that some of the guidelines are just things that you know, even if they really, really wanted to follow them, they they don't know how to do it.
0: Kevin Rennie, uh, what's your take on the approach, again, uh, local districts uh, being able to decide, uh, and to Collins' point, why there needs to be a central decision maker in this?
1: I think we're going to have to be nimble and um, and judge this week by week because, uh, you know, schools have not been open for, Five and a half months, and um, uh, I just—I think this is this is a very new experience. Even though the, we've, we've had the virus here, and uh, coping with students back in school, even on a hybrid system, is just—we're just, just going to have—we're we're going to have to measure it moment by moment uh, to to see what the uh, what the most critical factors are uh, as uh, as students return to the classroom. And uh, I do think that uh, you know, if we have – we're going to know what's going on uh, town by town, and, and certainly the, uh, the administration will know, and I, I think they'll – they have the experience now to, uh, uh, to react, and I, and I do think that we um, uh, largely trust their judgment in this. Mm-hmm.
0: Daniela how much are we really going to know though because my understanding is you know nothing mandates a family to alert a school district if somebody in their family has covid
3: yeah i i i think that um i'm not even sure what the protocol is if uh if somebody in a classroom is, is, you know, is a confirmed positive case, I mean, I think there's just going to be such a patchwork. And as you mentioned, you know, the Denver example is really instructive because, um, you know, we were told that basically this mini outbreak or this spike in case is due to three factors: uh, sporting events, travel, and um, what was the third one? Uh, oh, so oh, religious worship, worship services. Worship mm-hmm. services. Right, so uh, it's it it, it's interesting because those are you know three places that three sort of well travel maybe not but the other two places have a lot of similarities with schools, and so if those uh, if that resulted in a in a spike in cases um, or an increase in cases, then um, you know what's going to happen when schools open even on a hybrid basis? What's going to happen when kids start taking the bus? What's going to happen you know with all these? different variables. Um, I think you're absolutely correct. We're, what we know now is, you know, probably going to be um, woefully out of date two weeks from now when schools are open. Mm.
0: We'll have to leave it there. Time to move on to feats of strength and airing of grievances. Colin.
2: Um, I'm just going to I'm going to air grievances and just talk a little bit about um, unkindness. Uh, and, and I see it all over the place in all parts of the ideological uh, um spectrum. Uh, Last night, I was disturbed to uh, read people on Twitter making fun of Tiffany Trump's appearance or the teeth of Nicholas Sandman. Uh, When I uh, go over and look at the CT Liberty rally people, those are the people who are opposed to almost all uh, pandemic restrictions, or or even guidelines, I see people not only just rejecting the idea of wearing masks, but really refusing to engage with, and sometimes very unpleasantly refusing to engage with the concerns of people who are immunosuppressed, immunocompromised, people who are placed in significant danger. Um, you know, it's a, important to remember uh, apropos of the conversation we just had. Everybody's in danger all the time now. I mean, that's the reality. You, if you, you don't need to have school children in your family to be endangered by these policies because we are all connected. Everybody is ultimately, by chains of exposure, exposed to everybody else. So it's important that we listen to one another, have empathy, be kind. Social media is so bad at that, <laughs> um, so much unkindness, so much rejection of other people's points of view. Uh, I, I don't know why, but I'm especially depressed by it this week.
0: Mm.
3: Um, so I would say both a feat of strength and a, um, uh, the opposite of that, I guess the, um, the way Facebook and Twitter are handling, um, the president's tweets and some misinformation he tweeted last, uh, or earlier this week that, um, uh, that there were some, there were a lot of concerns about, um, these mail drop boxes where voters can put in their ballots. You know, we saw them in front of town halls all over the state. So people could avoid the mail and drop these, drop their absentee ballots directly in there. And, and Trump tweeted that, you know, they're a voter security disaster and they could make it possible for people to vote multiple times and that they're not COVID sanitized. And he called them a big fraud. So um, Twitter flagged this message and basically said, you know, this violates Twitter rules. However, we're determined that it's in the public interest to leave this open, uh, to leave this tweet up. And then Facebook basically just flagged it with a, you know, a message that said, visit our voter information center for election resources and updates. So two different social media Mm -hmm. platforms handling um, Mm -hmm. tweet tweet by the president that can contain some incorrect information very differently. So mm-hmm. I think one gets uh, kudos for, for telling people that this information is false, um, And but we still need to leave it up because it comes from the president. And Facebook saying, you know, really just a, a blanket statement saying visit our voter information center mm-hmm. not really telling people giving people the information they need so i guess that's a maybe a, a long and confusing answer <laughs> but i would say it shows the difference between these two
0: platforms and kevin Rennie, we've got under a minute go ahead
1: um well i this is uh this is this is uh, sort of related to what colin said but it is uh it is a feat of strength and that is i feel like we're in a sort of a pause right now on how we're, how we're going to be confronting the coronavirus in the next few months. So um, take some time now to thank the people who have gotten us safely through to where we are. And uh, whether it's at the grocery store for the people, the employees who kept showing up, or, or at your local bank, uh, or your town clerk who is, uh, hmm. who has a big job ahead in distributing absentee ballots as sort of the front line of practical democracy?
0: Thank you, Kevin Rennie, Daniela Altamari, and Colin McEnroe.